Hey, brothers. So good to be with you tonight. Um, honored for this opportunity. I love getting together with men who are pursuing the Lord and doing that together and looking at his word and growing together. And I pray all that will happen tonight as we spend some time in a familiar passage of scripture for sure. I was thinking about when Lance gave me the invitation to come, I was thinking, there's no way this hasn't been taught recently. And um, and I've been working my way through 2 Samuel with our church. We've been working through First and 2 Samuel all year long. And for whatever reason, this particular message, even though it's a super familiar passage, resonated deeply with our people. And so as I thought and prayed, I think I, I was wondering if the Lord might do something similar among us tonight and use this passage in our own hearts to encourage us and challenge us. So if you've got a Bible, go to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to look at David and Bathsheba. But I hope with some fresh lenses tonight, I want to give you what I trust, maybe a, maybe a revitalized or a renewed version of an old story, maybe see some things in it that you have not seen before. I know in my own preparation for it, I had seen some things that I hadn't seen either. So I'm not going to read the passage up front. I'm going to read it as we go. We're not going to read every single verse. We're going to be mainly in chapters 11 and 12. But if you've got some notes tonight, or are they maybe on the screen behind me, um, what I want to do is we're going to spend about 15 minutes or so looking at how David got himself into the mess he got into, and then spend the last half talking about God's gracious rescue of David and what that shows and how the Lord ministers to us in the midst of our own times where we blow it pretty severely too. All right, so first of all, we're going to spend some time looking at four steps to David's ruin and then four steps to David's rescue. The ruins in chapter 11, the rescues in chapter 12. So um, before we get to the actual passage, just to catch you up on the David story, um, if you're not readily familiar with it, David is the first not technically the first king of Israel, but he's the first God-appointed king of Israel, right? So we know Saul was, was David's predecessor. David's reign started out on a high point, I mean, and it just kept going higher. David was called by God as a shepherd boy. He was prepared. He fought Goliath. He defeated him, one of our favorite stories. Um, he consistent, consistently waged war against the Philistines surrounding enemies of Israel, continued to deal them one blow after another. It seemed like everything was going right in David's reign. And then we get to chapter 11, and this great fall of sorts happens for David, where he commits adultery with one of his mighty men's wives. He tries to cover it up. He commits murder, and he eventually lies about it, eventually being confronted and coming to repentance over it. But the seeds of David's downfall were already present. If you read the early chapters of 2 Samuel, and I encourage you to do that at some point, you'll see David's already been gathering wives to himself. He's been kind of getting enmeshed in sexual sin already as, as he's been living out his reign. And so when we get to, when we get to chapter 11, it's, it's not all that surprising what we find. And in fact, it's not at all surprising then what we, what we see replicated in Solomon, his son's life, who would even take that even further. So let's look, first of all, at David's four steps to ruin in chapter 11, and we'll uh, walk through these fairly quickly tonight. First of all, avoiding our responsibilities. Avoiding our responsibilities. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So David begins chapter 11, getting some fresh air basking in the afterglow of success. Uh, for maybe the first time in David's life, David isn't leading God's people into battle, so he sends a proxy and he stays at home. And the path into sin for David, as it does for many of us, 
often begins simply by not doing what we ought to be doing rather than doing something we ought not to be doing. In other words, we find ourselves doing what we ought not to do because we haven't been doing what we ought to do. In other words, oftentimes the path into ruin or into sin begins pretty passively. It begins through omission, and then it begins to continue into commission. We put ourselves in danger, brothers, when we disengage from our responsibilities. See, when we're disengaged from whatever battle God has for us, that's when we're most susceptible to the temptations of the flesh. Brothers, you know this. As God's men, we were created to lead and fight and serve and protect. And when we're not doing that, those God-given energies can get misplaced and redirected and find a different outlet. And oftentimes, that outlet can lead to the intoxication of illicit sex or some other temptation or sin. When we're disengaged from our role in the spiritual battle, these sort of pseudo-excitements offer us another battle, another way of feeling alive, a distraction, an adventure that we somehow crave. And for many of us, it's not that your desire for sin is so strong, it's that your activity for Christ is so weak. And oftentimes that can increase temptation in our lives. It's not that we have some sort of uncontrollable lust as men. And I'm not talking about lust just in a sexual, I'm just talking about these uncontrollable passions. It's that we're just not fully living out what God has called us to be and do as men. I can tell you from personal experience that the attractions of sin begin to lose a significant amount of their power, not all of their power, but a lot of it, when we're actively engaged in battling in the power of the Spirit for our church, for our family, for our co-workers to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. David wasn't doing that. He was basking in the palace the time when kings go out to battle. David was not one of those kings. He should have been out to battle, but he wasn't. And so that led to his downfall eventually, first of all, by avoiding his responsibility. Second, nursing our entitlement. Nursing our entitlement. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, the language here is very interesting. I want you to see something. Just look look carefully again at verse 2 and notice what it says. It says he was walking, that he saw that the woman was very beautiful. And then verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. Saw, desired, took. Where you heard that before? That's as old as Eden, isn't it? The woman saw that the tree was good, desired, took. See, desire, take. It's Genesis 3, 6. All over again. It's always the path into sin. It doesn't change. But at some level, I, I mentioned David's nursing his entitlement here. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that David had forgotten the grace of God and what it had done in his life, and he began to feel entitled to things that were forbidden for him, namely the taking of another man's wife to be his own. Now, this is not readily apparent here in this verse, but it is apparent in Nathan's rebuke, the prophet Nathan, who comes later. We'll we'll spend more time looking at him and what Nathan tells him. Look at chapter 12 quickly, verse 7. 
Notice how Nathan diagnoses what was going on in David's soul that led David into this sin to begin with. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I appointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why, verse 9, have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight? Nathan says, have you forgotten all that God has given you? Have you, have you turned your mind off from realizing all the grace that has literally flooded your life? I mean, this is also the kind of thinking that was present. Remember Uriah, we'll come back to him in a moment. That's Bathsheba's husband. Why was it that he wouldn't go and sleep with Bathsheba? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 11, and notice what's in Uriah's mind, this righteous man who's at war fighting David's battles that he should be on the battlefield for. But Uriah says in verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? In other words, he's thinking, all these guys are sacrificing their life for me, for our kingdom. I can't take advantage of this right now. He's focused on his responsibilities, and he knows that it would be a violation of his duty as a, as a soldier to do that. So Nathan says, David, you have forgotten your grace, the grace, that, the grace of God that was given to you. Think about Joseph. Remember Joseph in Genesis 39? What was it that kept him from sinning with Potiphar's wife? What was the dynamic that caused him to flee from that situation? We read in Genesis 39, 6-10, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast his eyes on Joseph, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you." because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So what was it that led Joseph to say, I'm not going to do that with that man's wife. God has given me so much. Brothers and sisters, or brothers and sisters, you're not sisters, I'm thinking my own church. Brothers, <laughs> and any sisters who may be present that I'm not sure of. Here's the truth. Satan will always get us to think that God is restricting more from us than he is giving to us. He, he, he convinced Adam and Eve of that in the garden. He says, if God said to you, you, can, you can't eat from any tree in the garden, any tree. Is that what God said? No, that's not what God said. God said you may eat from every tree in the garden except one. But Satan flips it and tries to make God, paint God as the one who is keeping pleasure, keeping joy, keeping blessing from your life. And once he's got you believing that, you begin to nurse this entitlement that leads you to step outside of what God has forbidden. We deserve nothing, and God has given us so much in Christ, hasn't he? Being conscious of all that we've received and being continually grateful is the great antidote for sin. It is. Because we begin focusing on the many trees that God has given us to enjoy without fixating on the one that he's forbidden. 
So brothers, if you feel yourself to be in somewhat of an entitled state where you feel like God's given you a raw deal about things or things aren't turning out the way, Lord, you made all these promises to me and I don't see like you're, you're not delivering on your end, go back to what he has promised you. Think about those things. Meditate on those sorts of things. Be grateful for those things and see if sin doesn't begin to weaken its hold on you. So David, first of all, is... Not is neglecting his responsibilities, and second of all, he's nursing his entitlement. But number three, he begins to objectify his neighbor. We objectify our neighbors. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now it appears from the text that David did not think of Bathsheba as a fully orbed person. He thought of her as an object for his pleasure. The author mentions this subtly in, the, in verses 3 and 4. David sent and inquired about who? The woman. The woman was... Notice, notice, just notice what he says in verse 2. Uh, he, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David, verse 3, inquired about the woman. It's just he's focused on a woman. He's depersonalized this woman. She's just a woman. She's just an attractive woman. But we get a different level of detail from the ones that he's talking to. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba? She has a name. The daughter of Eliam? She's somebody's daughter. The wife of Uriah the Hittite? See, the, the messenger is putting name, uh, giving her a name, giving her relationships, giving her an identity. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. In fact, Uriah is one of David's mighty men, not only a neighbor, but a trusted warrior. Bathsheba was the daughter of another of David's mighty men, we learn in 2 Samuel 23, making David's treachery even more egregious because he's sinning against two of his faithful soldiers. Eliam's a faithful shoulder, soldier, that's Bathsheba's dad. And of course, Uriah, her husband, is a faithful soldier in David's army. And the messenger is relaying all that information to David, but David just sees a woman. Here is a person who loves and is loved for things far beyond the beauty of her body, but David doesn't think about that. She's just an object to him. And this is what happens, brothers, specifically with sexual sin we forget that we're dealing with someone's life, usually multiple people's lives. This person is someone's daughter, someone's mother, someone's wife or future wife. This man you're messing around with is some little girl's daddy. One resource I came across in preparation for the sermon mentioned this word of counsel. He said this, When you're out and you notice an attractive woman, look at her face and notice if she looks tired. If she's carrying packages, consider who she might be carrying them for and think, I bet she's a great mom. Make her a person. Give her a life. And then ask yourself, I wonder if she knows Jesus, and pray for her. Giving her a spirit like that will often dispel the temptation. See, what, what's that writer telling you? Humanize them. Humanize them. Brothers, we live, I think it's say, safe to say, not just in a pornified culture, but because of that, it, it forces us to objectify people. We, we live in a way, and part of this is just our culture, the way it, it 
it not only encourages us to objectify people, but actually incentivizes it in some ways. And one of the things that will keep you away from this sort of sin is realizing that the person you're looking at is a person who has relationships and things they love and things that they're interested in and things that they value. And they're somebody's daughter and they're somebody's friend. You know, pornography objectifies people. And one of the things that keeps us away from pornography is realizing that the person on the other side of that camera is a real person. She was once a little girl with all kinds of dreams that did not include being looked at like this. She was probably trafficked somewhere along the way, or even if she's voluntarily put herself in that environment, attached to that girl is probably a broken-hearted father and mother somewhere. So don't miss that what David is doing is a version of pornography. David is gazing at Bathsheba that's leading to her objectification, which leads to his consumption of her. That's all it is. And David is acting on these sorts of things because he has objectified Bathsheba in this way. Listen, brothers, if you're in a struggle, which how can you not be in our, in our culture? But if you're not actively engaged in a struggle to cultivate, and I'm not talking, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about, because you can get pornography out of your life and still live in objectification of people, right? That's not the point here. The point is creating a heart that can't even imagine looking at it because you, 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 can't, you can't help but weep at the people who are involved in such things and what brokenness would lead them to even participate in that. That's the heart you want to get to, where it's not only not a temptation, it's something of a revulsion. Like it, it, It's like, I can't even bring myself to do this because I feel like I'm participating in the very thing that is, 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 is not only killing my own soul, but wreaking havoc on this person's life. I'm somehow participating in that. So for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your relationships, deal with that at the heart level. And if you're dating someone seriously or you're engaged and you're not willing to address this in your life, then you owe it to your girlfriend or your fiance to tell them because she deserves to know and you need to give her the option to opt out before it comes out later. So David is objectifying his neighbors. Fourthly, David's covering his tracks. He begins to cover his tracks. This is the rest of chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I do want you to notice verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is after Bathsheba discovers that she's pregnant in verse 5. Verse 6, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So Bathsheba's pregnant. First thing David does is try to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. It's still early in the pregnancy, so he thinks maybe she won't realize it's his or the kingdom won't, and um, Uriah will think it's his and later think it's his child. So look at verses 8 and 9. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a, that's a euphemism for go ahead and sleep with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present for the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now we learn in 1 Samuel 21 
that David himself was the one who prohibited sexual relationships during battles. And this was to maintain ritual purity so that they could carry out the divine will. So it's, it's really ironic here that David is the one violating David's own rules. But his mighty men aren't, his soldiers aren't, but the king is. That's sad, isn't it? In those days, battles were considered to be religious affairs for the people of Israel. And this is why Uriah refuses to go to his wife when he answers David's summons. So what does David decide to do? Well, he's like, got to come up with a different idea here. So he decides to get Uriah drunk in hopes of lowering his inhibitions and resolve. And we read in verses 12 and 13, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so they made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Notice what Uriah is doing. He is showing more restraint in his drunkenness than David does when he's sober for the sake of the men's mission to show solidarity with him. And when that doesn't work, David arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle and for Bathsheba to be brought into his harem. And so we read in verse 14, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it, to the, sent it by the hand of Uriah. And basically he says, All right, I want you to pull back, get Uriah in a compromising position, pull back, and let the enemies take him out. It's a horrendous, terrible And yet that's exactly what happens, and Uriah dies. That's David's ruin. He avoided his responsibility, he nursed his entitlement, he objectified his neighbor, and then he began covering his tracks. Now let's look at rescue, four steps to rescue. In chapter 12, we see David's path toward repentance and how he was led out of his sin. Here's the first step, confronting our reality, confronting our reality. And what I mean is someone or something bringing your sin before your face and helping you see it as you've not seen it before. For us, it might happen in the rebuke of a friend or a parent or a teacher or a wife or a boss or through a message we hear at church or perhaps even just the Holy Spirit whispering in your own conscience. But in David's case, it happens through the prophet Nathan in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. And David sent Nathan to da- the Lord sent Nathan to David, and oh how gracious that is when the Lord sends someone to us to rescue us in our sin. He came to him and said to him, "There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him with his children. It was used to eat it of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. We'll get nowhere until we get confronted and we get honest. And the writer here is very unequivocal about blaming David for this situation. Chapter 11, verse 27, lays the blame squarely at David's feet. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, that's Bathsheba, and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Bathsheba's not chastised. 
David is. To pin the blame equally on Bathsheba is to ignore how God assesses the story through the prophet Nathan. We've already seen how Nathan describes the boldness of David's sin in chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. But think about this for a second. The same man who had been so scrupulous to honor the Lord's anointed when it was Saul now acts as though he's in a category by himself, as though the Lord's commands do not apply to the Lord's anointed. David thinks he has all the power, all the authority. You know what? This reminds me of another king of Israel who spent all his royal energy chasing a successful commander from his own army through the wilderness. Who does that remind you of? Saul. David has become Saul. He's chasing down one of his mighty men in the wilderness to kill him, Uriah. That's just what Saul tried to do to David for chapter after chapter after chapter of 1 Samuel. What has happened to David that he has become so much like Saul? I'd never considered the way the narrator is painting David to be like Saul, irrationally seeking the life of his faithful military commander. And that makes Nathan's rebuke all the more scathing. You know, the most shocking part of this story, though, comes after the murder of Uriah when David tells his commander this in 2 Samuel 11, let this matter not be evil in your eyes. Oh, David, you're trying to redefine sin. You're trying to make it like it's no big deal. You're trying to redefine your own behavior as acceptable. And Nathan, the prophet, makes absolutely clear that what David has done is evil in God's sight which is the only opinion that ultimately matters, right? As a prophet, Nathan had a unique responsibility to confront David's sin. And brothers, in our own congregation here, in your congregation, that's our responsibility with each other too. You have a ministry of watch care over each other to keep each other faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to confront gently but firmly when we see one of our brothers beginning to go astray, And we've been called to receive that correction when needed. We should open ourselves up to it. It's not easy to give or receive correction, but this is part of God's plan for our spiritual safety and sanctification. Now, we're not prophets like Nathan, but it is a reminder of how important others are in our recovery and in our safety and in our fight against sin ourselves. We need to open ourselves up regularly to be Davids for awaiting Nathan, and we need to be willing to be a Nathan at times. And do it like Nathan did it. Don't come in blazing, calling somebody out, finger in the chest. Show love, show care, ask questions. And almost in such a way lead them to want to confess it. And that's, it. that's what Nathan does. He tells a parable. He tells a story. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? Oftentimes when he was trying to help people see something they weren't seeing themselves, he would share a story. He would give an illustration. He wouldn't just say, look, you're, you're blind right now. Let me tell you what's going on. No, you, you, you patiently walk beside somebody and you try to help them see what they're not seeing. And that's what Nathan did for David. So confessing or acknowledging, confessing our reality, seeing our reality is the first step. Second, acknowledging our guilt. Acknowledging our guilt. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then if you want more on that, what that looked like, reread Psalm 51, which we don't have time to do tonight. But Nathan's rebuke lands squarely on David's heart. He offers no defense, no equivocation. He's been caught in the act. 
And I can't imagine a better response than that. I have sinned. And not just I've sinned, I've sinned against the Lord. So often we want to, when we're, when we're being confronted in our sin or we're trying to talk about it, it's, we, we don't like to use sin and we don't like to reference the Lord. It was, well, I made a mistake. Or I shouldn't have done that. Or, um, you know, the circumstances. You know, or, well, my past is like, it, look, the best thing to just do is call it what it is. If it's sin, it's not always sin. It could be something else. But if it's what the Lord calls sin, call it sin, agree with God about it, and then acknowledge who you've sinned against. You've sinned against the Lord. Can you imagine what some of David's responses could have been instead? I mean, she was naked, man. What are you going to do? Uriah should have gone home to his wife and I wouldn't have been killed that way. If he'd just done what I told him to do, I tried to set him up twice. The Ammonites killed him, not me. But David gives none of these excuses. With every failure, we stand at a crossroads. We can hedge, we can whine, we can deflect, we can give excuses, we can shift blame, or we can take responsibility, we can repent, and we can get healed. And, there's, and that's a better path forward. Way, way better path forward. Thirdly, receiving our consequences. Receiving our consequences. David's sin will bring consequences into David's life. Notice verses 10 to 12 of chapter 12. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart, Nathan says, from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Verse 12, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David's sin is going to bring consequences. First of all, Nathan says the sword's not going to depart from his house. In other words, the peace and stability that his kingdom has enjoyed is over. It's over. The lifetime that he has spent serving to establish a unified Israel is now going to get split in half, and it's going to get torn by two civil wars. Secondly, Nathan says that the Lord is going to raise up evil against him from his own house, that his sin is going to bring about the open rebellion and attacks of two of his sons, Amnon and Absalom, to come in future chapters. And in verse 14, we're told the child will die. The baby conceived by David's sin died seven days after the baby was born. And this is an important lesson, brothers, for us, even though our sin is not in the same category as David's. David is a ruler in Israel. He has a covenant with God in a unique sense, and the, the responsibilities and the consequences that his sin bear is reflective of the responsibilities he had in the kingdom. But we need to realize and we need to recognize that all sin carries consequences with it, especially ongoing, unrepentant, or flagrant public big sin. It will carry consequences with it. I think about this a lot. Um, now, especially since I've been a pastor. And pastors, we feel like sometimes we've got a target on our back because, you know, um, you can think, you know, what even Jesus said, which doesn't necessarily apply to pastors. But, you know, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. If you can take the, take the leaders out, you can disrupt the harmony and peace of the church. So I've written some things for myself, even when I was preparing this sermon several weeks ago, 
And it was inspired by an article that I read where a man listed out all the things would, hap- would happen if he committed adultery. And I made my own list, and I want to share it with you. If I committed adultery, I would cause untold hurt to my wife, Katie, and I would have to endure the loss of her respect and trust and might, never, might forever forfeit my marriage with her. I would cause deep hurt and confusion in my children who may never understand why I traded a close, close relationship with them for a thrill. Yes, I could likely stay involved in their lives, but my relationship with them would never be the same. I would bring endless judgment on the woman I committed adultery with. Her life would be forever labeled by this encounter as well. If she had kids, I'd be the biggest stumbling block for them learning to trust in Jesus. I would confuse and discourage many in their walk of faith. I would cause shame to God, to my church family. I'd give another reason for the enemies of God to blaspheme and mock Christianity and say it's phony and untrue. I'd follow in the footsteps of hundreds of other pastors whose immorality forfeited their ministry and stained the name of the church. Most importantly, I would grieve my Jesus and one day... I would have to look him in the face and explain why after all that he had given to me, after all the blessings and all the beauty that he had put in my life, that I had to have something else. It's just good for our souls to get out into the future and say, if I blow it, what will it look like? And write that epitaph before it ever comes to pass. And I go back and, I, and I, since I've written that, I just, I'm even provoked now even saying this to you. I need to, I need to read that pretty regularly. That would do my soul some good. Especially when I feel like, oh, the Lord would never, or whatever, or feeling, feeling some of those things that David might have felt, some of that entitlement, or feeling so, you know, feeling, feeling like I, I deserve something more. Now, I, we're going to get to forgiveness, glorious forgiveness in a moment. But that doesn't, don't let that water down the impact of this point. You can always get forgiveness from sin, but you can't unsin the sin. Your sin, even after forgiven, can leave waves of destruction that can take a lifetime or even generations to be dealt with. So there is an appropriate place for letting the fear of the Lord be a source of wisdom for us here. Fourthly and finally, and this is where we'll conclude, enjoying our forgiveness, enjoying our forgiveness. Notice what Uriah or uh, Nathan immediately says to David in verse 13. After David says, I've sinned against the Lord, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. After seeing David repent, Nathan assures David that God has not taken his love for him. David will not die. He hasn't been canceled. God still has a plan for him. Nathan tells David, you won't die. And the Lord has put away your sin. Nathan assured him that God still had a lot of good things left for him, plans to use him for good, and he does. His life is not over. As I've heard it said before, and I remind us again tonight, if you're not dead, God's not done. If you're not dead, God's not done. God is always working. What did 2 Samuel 7, when God made this covenant with David, what did it say? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, your throne will be established forever. Now I want to ask you a question. How can God do that? How can Saul sin the way that David did in many ways? And God says, no kingdom for you. 
you're done. And then David sinned the exact same way in many of the same ways, and he said, no, my steadfast love is not going to depart from you. Well, part of it's because he's God's king, right? He chose him. It was by grace to begin with. But think about it for a minute. You know, when you, when you read that verse that Nathan says, you should immediately think the gall of Nathan. How could the prophet say, God's put away your sin? You just, it's done. You're, it's done. Don't worry about it, David. The Lord's put it away. How does the Lord put it away? Well, we know if we go to Romans and we read about David and we read, oh, David was justified by faith and that's how it happened. But did you know within this story, within this very story is the way that David is forgiven and he's not even seeing it yet, but we can see it. Do you see any sort of person who is innocent dying for the guilty in this story? Is there any foreshadows of Jesus here present in 2 Samuel 11 and 12? Yeah, there is. His name's Uriah. Bathsheba's husband. Uriah was innocent and selfless. He was loyal to David to the very end. He can't bring himself to enjoy a night of legitimate pleasure when his countrymen were in harm's way. And when Uriah was placed on the front lines of the fiercest, fiercest part of the battle and told to charge into the face of death, he did it without hesitating or complaining. In the end, Uriah dies, not because of his sin, but because of David's sin. Who does all that remind you of? Uriah smells a whole lot like Jesus to me. Jesus was the true mighty man who was loyal to the end, who refused to partake of pleasure when we were in harm's way, and he rushed into our battle on our behalf so that even when it was certain that he would die, he was willing to give up his life for us. And in the end, he died like Uriah, not for his sins, but for ours. King David remained at home instead of going to battle. Christ willingly left his heavenly home to fight the battle against our sin, to win that battle on the cross and in the empty tomb. And King David took someone's life in order to cover up his sin, but Christ willingly laid down his life to forgive our sins. King David took a bride who was not rightfully his, but through living a holy and blameless life and shedding his blood and rising from the dead, Christ purchased a bride for his own possession, a holy bride composed of people from all tribes and tongues and people and nations, a bride composed of people like me, David's. God put the story of King David and Bathsheba in the Bible, yes, as a warning against the destructive tendencies of sin, but oh, there's a bigger lesson to learn here. And it's in the background of this faithful soldier who's laying his life down for his king and dying the death that his king deserved to die. It's foreshadowing Christ. This is how David can be forgiven. This is how we can be forgiven because a righteous and innocent one has taken our place, died in our place for our sins, and this is why the story of David and Bathsheba should prompt us to bask in the healing that Christ's wounds have purchased for us. Don't leave this night thinking of on all the ways that you have failed the Lord in your various pursuits of holiness or lack thereof. Think on his beautiful Savior that he has given for you. Because it's Christ's beauty. It's Christ laying his life down 
for us in obedience and reread the story of Uriah and, and just put Jesus' name right in the middle of it and see Uriah being a, a dim but accurate portrait of what Jesus would one day come and do for us. Through no fault of his own, through nothing that he did, only being loyal and honoring to his king, he lost his life as a result of it, just like our Lord Jesus did for us. And therefore, we can say with David in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David says, it's where we began tonight. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice and shout for joy because your greater Uriah has died in your place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for 2 Samuel 11 and 12, a familiar passage of scripture to many of us, well-known for many reasons. But Lord, may it be most well-known in our own hearts from this day forward as a portrait of our loving Jesus who came and gave his life for sinful, rebellious men like us. We see ourselves in David. Even though we may not have done the sins that he did, we can see in ourselves the same temptations, the same proclivities, the same desires, and we, can, we see ourselves in him. And we thank you that we have a greater Uriah that laid his life down for us, who was loyal to you and loyal to us and did not sin, but faithfully did exactly what you had told him to do. So, and as a result, lost his life, dying in our place for our sin, but not being left in the grave, rising again on the third day, conquering sin and death in the grave and giving us hope and forgiveness and eternal life so that your steadfast love will never, ever depart from us because of your covenant with the greater David and our union with the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that your steadfast love will not depart from us. Thank you that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us all because the work of our greater David the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, brothers. It's been an honor to be with you tonight and an honor to share God's word.